You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they I felt, felt right. I was so and I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week, we're bringing you two stories of fear responses, from one man's unconventional solution to a phobia to a military surgeon forced to operate on a soldier in the middle of a windstorm in Iraq. Our first story is from Mark Pagan. It was recorded in October 2016 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. The theme was fear. In my experience, old men from foreign countries like to talk to me in public. And um, I think it's because I can pass for like 72% of the world's population. <laughs> they, they go short and dark and they look at me, they're like, he understands my worldview. And it happens like once a week, like I'll be at the deli and the guy will say, where are you from? And I'll say, oh, I'm, I'm Latino. And he'll go, no. And I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean, no? And he goes, I'm from Yemen. We are brothers. And I'm like, that's great. Yeah, we can do that. And it's really, it's actually really nice because I have this like global fraternity of swarthy men. And it comes in handy. And so a while back, I'm on the F train and the doors open. And this guy, he's like the winner of Mr. Old World. He just has this beaten up linen suit and this fedora that's from a town that probably doesn't exist anymore. And I know exactly what's going to happen. The train is empty. He sits right next to me. <laughs> and he's, he's Slavic. He's, he's somewhere, and he, he just launches into mid-conversation. He just... <laughs> and like, I, I just nod. Like, I'm a nice guy, so I just let him finish whatever he's saying. And uh, then I say, I, I, I speak English. And he goes, oh, oh, um, uh, Manhattan. And I go, yeah, yeah, this is going to Manhattan. And I go back to what I was doing. What I was doing was what I call lap reading. And I know there's a number of you that also do this. It's when you are reading something that you're embarrassed about in public. <laughs> and so you put, you put it in your lap so that nobody can see the cover and you read from there. And he does what all lap readers fear, he just lifts the cover <laughs> to see what I'm reading. And he, and he reads out the main title and goes, sir, sir, like an eagle, like that. And I just nod. And I'm afraid he's going to want me to explain to him what the other words on the page and what the book is about. And I'm going to have to say, yes, soar, conquering your fear of flying. I am afraid of flying. And he's going to go, ah, a book, a Pussy. <laughs> you got that right. You got that right. 
Doesn't happen. There's a few stops later. He gets off and he just tips his fedora and he goes, eh, sir, sir, and he leaves me uh, with me <laughs> and my secret. Now, I grew up, I, I have a privileged upbringing. I was, from a very early age, I started flying with the family. Um, you know, I went to go see family in the Caribbean, and my father worked abroad most of the year. So it was never an issue. And, I don't know, it was like eight years ago, I just, I sat down on a flight, and I said to myself, this could crash. And then that subsequently turned into, this will crash. And that started happening, that mental space for every single flight. And so once the doors would close on flights, I'd go into high alert status. And I would just wait for anything that I thought was irregular, which is usually turbulence. And when I felt the first bump, my amygdala would go, did you feel that? What was that? And I would say, I don't know. And then I'd feel another bump. And the amygdala would say, is anybody else freaking out here? And I'd go, no. And my amygdala would say, well, that's a conspiracy. They all know. Do you have an exit strategy? And I'm like, I can't get out of a plane. And they make the load say, well, let's see if there's another bump. There'd be another bump. And they're like, well, we have to do something. And then there would just be diarrhea and lots of cold sweat. And I was like, this is, this is really, really awful. This is awful. And so I tried tons of things. Like, you know, friends would give me Xanax. I tried meditation. And I do this thing where I would just stay up the night before a flight. And I was like, I will just pass out on the flight. <laughs> And I get up there, and I would just, it would just be panic with a lot of yawning. That's it. Like, that's all that would happen. And so I did some research, and I found out about this book. I'm not here to sell you this book today, guys. But I am a connoisseur of the self-help world, and this is my orchid thief. It is <laughs> sore as some shit, guys. It is so good. It's written by, by Captain Tom Bond. He's an ex-captain. He's now a clinical therapist. And one of the eye-opening things in, in this whole thing is that he, he talks about this anti-anxiety hormone called oxytocin, right? And this is released, you know, between a, a mother nursing her infant, uh, foreplay, sex, joyful moments like your wedding or for some of us, divorce. <laughs> and it, it's, it's important because it inhibits. It inhibits the amygdala from releasing stress hormones, right? And my amygdala is like... It is very charitable with stress hormones. So I'm like, I got to figure out what to do here. And he suggests this amazing technique where he calls it empathic attunement. You pick a moment from your life, a brief memory, where you felt really connected with somebody. And you overlay that memory on top of any of the triggers. So for instance, thinking about turbulence, thinking about going to the airport, you take that memory and you just put it, you just condition your body to respond to the stimuli with this oxytocin. One of the problems is all I can think about in terms of memories are ex-girlfriends. And like, I don't want to be on a flight and think of something doomed and just have an ex-girlfriend in my mind. So I'm having a hard time with this. And this, this Slavic guy comes into my head saying, Sor! And it's like this Obi-Wan moment of like, dig deeper. <laughs> And I think about it, I'm like, oh, my dad was an old foreign man. <laughs> and I have this memory, this memory. And this happened a lot with him. But this one time, I remember, I was about 12 years old. And I went upstairs just to say goodnight. And my dad engulfed me. And he kissed me on the cheek. And I could feel the bristles from his beard. And I just 
took in, just inhaled all this Old Spice cologne. (laughs) And I remember this, and I go, oh my God, old foreign men are my nurturers. (laughs) Like, if you got some hairy arms and a good hug, you're my squad. Like... (laughs) Love it. It works. And that was, that was my dad. My dad was, he's not around anymore, but he was just, he was my safe space. And I'm like, oh, this is good. This is good. We're going to work with this. So I start doing the exercise and I, I, I do it at home at night. This is really cheesy to admit. Okay, so I do it at home at night. And part of the exercise is I put my hand over my heart and I, I replay this memory of my dad with this audio recording of Captain Tom Bunn talking about the triggers. So like, think of going to the airport. And I think, okay, think of that hug. Think of that hug. Think of that hug. Think about the door closing in the airplane. Think of that hug. Think of that hug. Think of that hug. And I'm doing this. And nine times out of 10, I fall asleep in my bed. And I'm like, great, this is probably working. But I'm not on a plane. I have no idea. So I'm like, let's put this into action. (laughs) Now, for five years or so, I've only been taking regional flights, like two-hour flights, high alert, totally panicked. I'm like, we're going back old school, man. We're going to do this international. (laughs) So I get in touch with a friend who lives very internationally, and I book a direct flight from JFK to Johannesburg. And if you guys remember what the map looks like, (laughs) that's 17 hours, the majority of which is over the Atlantic Ocean. I booked the flight, and I swear to God, I said, we're going on a trip, Dad. (laughs) I'm not proud to say it, but come on. It did happen, and then immediately I was like, what did I do, what did I do, what did I do? And... I mean, I have to be honest, I called, uh, I called the airline three times seeing if I could reschedule. Like, is there any chance that uh, the flight might get canceled? <laughs> and meanwhile, Slavic Obi-Wan just kept showing up going, sod, sod, sod. <laughs> so the day comes, and I go to JFK, and I buy myself a New York Times. I've never read a New York Times cover to cover, but I'm like, this should take 17 hours to do. <laughs> so maybe that'll take care of everything. So I, I get on, the door to the airplane closes. I go, open up the newspaper. And we get up in the air, and I'm flying. A few hours later, I hear a ding. And our captain gets on and goes, hey, ladies and gentlemen, we got news that there might be some bumps up ahead. So I'm going to put on the seatbelt sign. I want to make sure everybody gets back to their seats uh, until we get through this. And my amygdala goes, did you hear that? (laughs) (laughs) And I go, hug, 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 and start thinking about that. A few moments later, there's the first bump. My amygdala goes, did you feel that? And I go, hug, 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 hug. Second bump, did you feel that? Hug, 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 hug. Third bump, hug, 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 hug. Now, I can't tell you guys how many bumps we hit or how long the turbulence lasted for because eventually I fell asleep. Thank you. Thank you.
was Mark Pagan. Mark is an award-winning storyteller, comedian, multimedia artist, and writer best known for his humorous autobiographical and documentary vignettes for stage, television, online screenings, print, and installation. His work and performances have been shown at festivals worldwide. Stay tuned for the next story after this message from our sponsor. This week's podcast is brought to you by HelloFresh. Whether you're a busy professional couple, a large family that runs at a breakneck pace, or someone who simply wants to start cooking more, HelloFresh makes it easier, tastier, and healthier than ever to enjoy the experience of cooking new recipes and eating together at home. From creating the recipes and planning the meals, to grocery shopping and even delivering all of the pre-measured ingredients, HelloFresh delivers right to your door so you can save the trip. They currently offer customers a classic box or a veggie box, and will be launching a family box. Customers can order two, three, or four or five different meals per week for either two or four people, and new recipes are created every week. HelloFresh sent me one of their classic boxes, and it was great. The ingredients were fresh and amazing. The delivery and simple packaging are great for my schedule. I love the feeling of making fresh-cooked food myself, and there's no waste. Normally, with leftover ingredients, I put them in the fridge and forget about them until I have to throw them out. And with HelloFresh, each one is measured exactly, so there's no waste and no worry. They also have a full-time registered dietitian on staff who reviews each recipe to ensure it's nutritionally balanced, and there's new recipes each week. If you're like me, busy as hell during the day working, but also likes to cook great meals, then HelloFresh is fantastic. For $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter Collider when you subscribe. That's HelloFresh.com, enter code Collider. Welcome back. Our second story is from Rob Lim. It was recorded in October 2016 at Busboys and Poets in Washington, D.C. This show was produced in partnership with Springer Nature's Before the Abstract podcast, which you can find at beforetheabstract.com. My story starts out around November uh, in 2002 now. This is after 9-11. Uh, there was more talk about Saddam Hussein not complying with the uh, United Nations mandates and, and things like that. And we're talking about invading Iraq and there was weapons of, weapons of mass destruction talk. And, and so uh, I was assigned to a forward surgical team. And a forward surgical team is a 20-person surgical unit, right? It's made up of nurses and doctors and techs. And it's designed to be highly mobile. So when the Troops went somewhere, we could follow right behind them. And if they got hurt, we could do surgery right away, you know, oftentimes within an hour. Um, relatively new concept in the military. Um, and so I got assigned to this team thinking, well, you know, people get assigned all the time. They never really go to combat. Uh, and then around November, they said, hey, we need you to be in Miami in a couple of days. And in Miami is the uh, Army's Trauma Training Center. And you go there and you do two things. One, you meet your team and you get to see who, you're gonna, who you might deploy with if you go. Um, you know, you get to have a little personal interaction, know their backgrounds, that sort of thing. It's good team bonding. But it's also to learn some surgical skills that you may not have done for a while. You know, um, as a general surgeon, we fancy ourselves as able to take care of any part of the body. Uh, but we're not as facile with talking about head trauma or, or, or chest trauma or something like that. So it's a good refresher type of course. Um, there was also a new concept called damage control surgery, which we needed to learn. Uh, and, and damage control, just in a nutshell, is basically you do whatever do, you can do to um, save the life. 
So if someone has a badly damaged leg, for instance, uh, you could try to spend hours sewing it back together, putting the vessels back together, uh, but that takes a lot of time. And if that patient, is, you're doing that type of operation in the desert somewhere in a tent, the longer you spend in surgery, the higher their the mortality is. So you wouldn't want to do that. You just basically would cut the la- that leg off to say, you know, it gets an amputation, we just save your life. The other part of that is you'll likely have other patients to take care of. So you can't waste all of your supplies on one patient trying to save the leg when if you cut the leg off, they'll be better, the next patient will be better. And so uh, damage control topics had been around for about a decade before that, but never really used in a military setting. So we were learning this, this stuff and, re- and, and revising it um, as we prepared to go off to war. At this point, not knowing we were going to go anywhere. So after that trauma training, which is in November of 2002, um, we, uh, I went back to Fort Huachuca, started being a general surgeon again, uh, felt pretty confident that things were going well. But then around January timeframe, uh, it really started to heat up. You know, Saddam Hussein was not listening to anything that the United Nations had to say. Um, we had more troops going over there. I called my commander for the FAST team, and I said, hey, have you heard anything? Nope, don't worry about it, this was on Monday. So on Wednesday, he calls you back and says, hey, don't schedule any patients for February. I said, you know, that's like in two weeks away. He goes, yeah, yeah, don't, you know. so am I coming there? He's like, no, 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 don't worry about it, but don't schedule any patients for February. All right, fine, so at that time, I actually covered two hospitals, so I would round at one hospital and then drive back to my main hospital and do my work. So on Friday morning, I usually do uh, some minor procedures. And uh, so I came into the pre-op area, and there's no patients. And I looked at the nurse. I said, where are my patients? And they said, well, the chief medical officer canceled all your cases for you. And I was like, uh, OK. And the surgeons, no, that's not a good thing normally. So that means you did something bad. So they said, he wants you to go to his office. All right, so of course, I'm thinking, what did I do wrong? on that two-flight walk up to his office thinking, what could I possibly have done wrong? I've only been here for like six months. So I get in his office, and he's kind of glum. He's looking at me, and he says, your forward circle team wants you there tomorrow. <laughs> I said, what? He goes, yeah, it's Friday. And he goes, they, they got a plane. They're going to send you a ticket. They want you to be there by tomorrow so you can start training. I said, you're, you're kidding, right? He goes, no, no. I'm going to call him back and see if I can get you a couple more days. But you need to go home now. You need to start packing. You need to tell your wife that you're leaving uh, you know, likely within 24 hours. Um, I was in Fort Huachuca. My team was actually in Fort Hood. And so uh, what did I do? I mean, I did the only logical thing that anybody would do in this situation. I went to where my wife was, or my, at that time my fiancé was working, and I said, hey, we need to get married. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, she said, well, I guess you're getting deployed. I said, yeah. So, you know, she... Uh, my wife's a very strong woman, so she had a good cry for about five minutes, and I said, okay, why don't you go home and start packing? I'm going to make some arrangements. So I uh, went home, started getting all my gear together, started getting my, my will and things like that together and all the things you need to worry about. Um, she comes home with a wedding dress and says, all right, I called the, the chaplain. We got, a, we got a, a, a time at 6 o'clock tonight. You know, I called a couple people. We got some witnesses. So, uh, so that night we got married, and then my friends in the hospital threw us a little, you know, wedding. They bought a wedding cake. We had a nice little wedding in uh, Sierra Vista, Arizona, for Huachuca. So, but I still hadn't gotten the call back from the DCCS. He tells me I got a couple more days so I can report there on Monday. So we do everything the last couple of days, and then I report to Fort Hood and get ready to go to deploy. 
two weeks later, we land in Kuwait. All right, uh, those forces are building up on the border. We don't know when we're going in or if we're going in or what's going to happen. There's a big political, you know, fight. Saddam's not backing down. We're not backing down. UN's not backing down, right? And so we're hanging out in the desert. And they say, basically, our mission at that time was to prepare, just practice, right? We, we had 10 trailers, 10 vehicles, 10 trailers, 20 of us. Uh, and we each carried a, a certain thing. My, my vehicle was the oxygen tanks and the refrigerators that kept our medications. Um, but in the rest of the t- trailers were our tents, were our operating room tables, our gowns, our saline, everything else you need to do to run an operation. And so what we would practice is setting up our tent, right? We'd, we'd be there, and they'd, the commander would say, okay, go, go set up the tent, right? And we'd, tam- he, we'd time it. Someone would take charge. Um, you know, he'd say, okay, you're, this guy's dead. You go take charge, right? So then by the time we were done, after a couple of weeks, we were pretty fast out setting up that tent. Um, we could set the whole thing up, two water beds, two anesthesia machines, a covered tent, uh, generators, saline, electricity, all that kind of stuff, in less than an hour. And this is doctors and nurses, all right? Um, we like to think we're tough as surgeons, but we're not really manual lifter toughs, right? We're more <laughs> stay up all night tough. So this was a big deal for us. Um, so then I think about March, was it March? Was it, no, it was February uh, 18th. We, were, we got the call that we're going to go to the border of Iraq. And if Saddam hadn't backed down, we're going to go in. Shock and awe was going to happen. So we all lined up on the border. We turned off all our lights because you couldn't really have lights on, right? Because that just means that's what the enemy can shoot at. Um, and, you know, we're counting down. You know, it's just really happening. We're counting down. We saw the planes go over. We heard the artillery fire. It's happening. I turned to one of my buddies, and I was like, you know, how do we do our laundry? <laughs> He looked at me and said, well, I don't really know, but we'll, we'll, we'll figure something out. So um, the, the plan from our commander was we need to get up to Baghdad, which from the Iraqi border, was about, uh, Kuwait border, was about 350 miles, right? So they were estimating a five-day trip, right? Five days on, even on the non-paved roads. Um, so we left February 18th about that time, went into Iraq, and 18 days later, <laughs> we ended up in Baghdad. Um, and during that time, uh, everything, you, you have nothing. You're, like, you're, just, you're just, unless there was a surgery going on, which there, there wasn't quite for every day, but you know, there was really no sort of purpose for us. We were just one of the many people in this convoy. And you were really dependent on the person in front of you because, you, again, you couldn't put lights on. You couldn't follow the big green signs that said Baghdad this way, right? Um, you had these night vision goggles and night lights on the vehicles. There's these two little red lights in the back of the vehicle in the dust that you're driving, the desert, and you basically follow those for hours and hours, going about five miles an hour, because <laughs> you just couldn't really go very fast. Um, and then, you know, there, there, no one was going to say, hey, bathroom break, go to the bathroom. If you got hungry, you couldn't stop at 7-Eleven to go get, you know, a soda. Um, you know, I, I brought about five T-shirts and five uniforms, uh, and I realized, like, you can't change every day because you'll never have enough stuff. But when it got down to one uniform, we'd all take turns doing laundry with a laundry bucket and shampoo because nobody, nobody brought uh, laundry detergent. Or if they did, it went out pretty quickly. Uh, and we didn't shower for 18 days. Um, finally, though, uh, we got into the Baghdad on the airport. We're on the tarmac. If you remember Baghdad, Bob, um, I'm bringing back lots of bad memories, I know, but so there's a, a good picture of me brushing my teeth on a tarmac of the airport, 
and uh, we're listening to the shortwave radio that one of our guys brought, talking about, and Baghdad Bob was saying that the, the U.S. troops are dying. They're dying at the gates of the airport. They are not getting in. And I looked around as so I was brushing my teeth, and I said, if, if I'm on the, <laughs> the tarmac at the airport, I'm pretty sure we'll be taking the airport, right? Because if the doctor's there, you know, that means everyone else has already gone through there. Um, and so then we set up our tent, and we were ready to go. You know, we were ready for... Uh, um, uh, things to happen. Along the way, though, um, before we got into the uh, airport, uh, we had this one particular night. We had drove about about 30 straight hours between that one night and the next day, and so we were all pretty exhausted, and uh, I fell asleep in the front of my vehicle. Now, during that time, as we were driving, we had our body armor on, and we had our uh, chemical protective gear on, because there was still a threat of weapons, of, of chemical weapons during that time. And if you've ever worn those, they're, they're horrible. They're these carbon-based things. They're really thick. By the time you put all of your gear on with your pro mask and your weapon, you, you really can't move. And it's, it's super hot, right? It's the desert. So during the day, it's about 110. Uh, so you're sweating. It's enough to get your water ball up to your mouth so you can drink. And after that, you're just like, all right, if there's a patient here, let me know. Otherwise, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be here in the shade trying to, you know, stay comfortable. So I fell asleep in the, in the front seat of my, of my Humvee. And I woke up, and it was, it was dark orange out. And I looked around, and I had a little microphone, and I was like, uh, anybody else on our team out there? I actually thought that we had gotten chemically attacked because of the orange. Uh, after a couple of minutes, someone flying called back said, no, we're expecting a very bad sandstorm. And if you've been in a sandstorm, I know some guys are from my team here have been deployed. It turns pretty calm and bright orange before the sandstorm hits. And then it turns super windy, you can't hear anything, and it's just pitch black. So they say, no, no, stay in your vehicle, don't try to get outside, because any minute now, like, well, and then what they meant was like, like the next 20, 30 minutes, there's gonna be a horrible standstorm. So just, just hunker down, stay there, don't try to go out. Well, but then a minute later, we get this thing that we have three casualties. Um, so I do the right thing, we run out, there's three casualties, one of them has a gunshot wound to his abdomen, and his intestines are, are, are eviscerated, they're hanging out. All right, so we gotta, we gotta get this, we gotta, he's gotta go to the operated room. He's a little hypotensive, you know, he's, he's not doing too well. So pretty easy decision to make, we have to go to the operated room. So the commander says, okay, let's set, the, let's set the thing up. But now it's getting really windy. It's getting really windy, visibility is kind of low. We broke a record, we set it up in about 20 minutes. Everyone was just flying around. We had it done. By the time we had our tent set up, though, because we had to have light on the tent, it had to be protected from that. By the time we had a tent set up, though, it was pitch black outside. You couldn't hear it. You couldn't hear or see a thing. It was howling. One of our guys actually started sort of screaming into his mic and said, hey, hey, where are you guys? I can't find you. I can't find it. And after about five minutes, someone said, look, you just got to stay there. Don't bother moving because you can't see us. We can't see you. We can't go out to find you. Just wait till the storm is over. So some of us thought, this is not good. <laughs> he might not make it. Um, and that, I know that's what I was thinking, but I, I'm, I'm happy to tell you that he made it because he, he's sitting right over there. <laughs> that's our XO. <laughs> um, so um, we, got, we got gowned up, and we had to keep our chemical gear on, and we had to keep our body armor on just in case. And the anesthesiologist put the patient to sleep. We were ready to go. And uh, we heard some, some uh, long-distance fire coming or, or sound. And this, if it's close to it, it shakes the ground pretty good. 
So our tent is shaking. We're kind of shaking. We kind of look around and go, well, do we keep operating? And I guess we do because, you know, the patient's dying. And it was probably our guys firing outward. But still, it was pretty impressive. Uh, and then we heard small arms fire, which usually means people are within, within 100 yards of, your, of you. Uh, but I was thinking, well, who are they shooting at? Because it's pitch black outside. So, you know, just don't shoot toward the tent and I'll, I'll be okay. So I was the lead surgeon in this particular case. I got the scalpel. And as I was about to cut the patient in, I actually felt pretty good. It was hot. It was windy. Um, it was, I couldn't hear. I had to yell. But now I was going to do something that I was good at that I knew what was going on, that I didn't have to worry about following the red lights. I didn't have to worry about, you know, do I, do I wear this gear or whatever? I had to do the operation. Um, so uh, we opened him, the patient up. Everything was going well. And uh, I'm a big believer in God, but I think he has a funny sense of humor. And so the first patient we operated on was malrotated. So for the, so the people and the surgeons in the room, that, that happens about one in every 500 people where their intestines are not, are not where they're supposed to be. So this person's colon was all on the left-hand side, and this person's uh, small bowel is all on the right-hand side. Normally, it's the, the small bowel is the middle, the colon goes around it. So <laughs> we just laughed. We opened up and go, this is unbelievable, right? The first case in Iraq, sandstorm, indirect fire, nearby direct fire, and the guy's malrotated. But again, medical training took over. We felt pretty good. He did the case. The guy did well. He, you know, he, we got out of there. Um, during that time, and, and during my first time, we did about 30 cases. Uh, we recorded all our data and all this kind of stuff, just to, more for prosperity, I think, at the time. Um, but, you know, we, we thought we were pretty good. Thought the way we were, we were, you know, great guys. And I remember thinking back to when I was at ATTC, you know, there's a lot of very powerful surgeons who were at this training center, very accomplished, well-published, academic people who, you know, I looked up to and thought, well, if they published it, it must be a great study, it must be vetted, and these are the giants telling us what to do. Um, the people who invented or put the damage control part into the military thing, these are the senior-level surgeons of the military, uh, you know, they must have had great experience, you know, they're responsible, this is what it is. And I remember thinking in these cases, you know, this is all wrong. You know, a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense. We got the wrong equipment in some cases. We're sort of deployed in the wrong areas. Um, the surgery part is okay. It was more the system that was wrong. Um, so the deployment ended, and they came back, and they actually invited us to go back to Miami to talk about things. And in Arizona, there's a local medical school up at Tucson, and they invited me to come talk about uh, the experience. And uh, talking to some pretty accomplished general, uh, trauma surgeons in both places, and they, were, they couldn't hear enough about it. They wanted to know more about it. They were, they were pulling me inside. What'd you guys do for this? What'd you guys do for this? How did this go? Uh, and along the lines, I realized that, you know, what's published out there and what people do, maybe their best honest effort and it may be good, but it's often dependent on the kind of data that you have. And here I was, you know, one year out of my residency training, and I had a little bit more experience with some of this combat stuff than some of the more, public, more published trauma guys did. And that's not to, to discredit them. It's just that we were, hadn't been in a war like this for a while. So, you know, this was, this was hot news. The use of the forward surgical team and the damage control was a big deal. Um, and so they were looking for my opinion. And I thought, well, this ought to be better. This ought to be better. And those, those of us who have been deployed know that, you know, we get this big after-action reports after each time we go on a mission to try and see where improvements can come from. And what I realized is that there, there's people who are, are big writers and, and researchers, but you still need the data to come from somewhere. 
And it's great when people can put both of those things together. Those are some of the best uh, researchers that we have. And I find myself in, a, in this position where I could actually start to do that. So even though my board scores were terrible, and uh, uh, if you had met any of my, my professors at the time I was a, uh, uh, a resident, none of them would, be thought, would think that I would be somebody who might publish someday and, and, and be more in tune to doing academic type stuff. Um, uh, but here I am. It's always a big kick for me to come back to the American College of Surgeons because I see my professors and my mentors and things like that and say, and they, I know they didn't see, see this in my future, but, but here I am. It's sort of where opportunity met, it met what's out there. And I realized that even at this sort of younger level or, or less experienced level, you can still see things that make things better and can make change. And so that started me on a path to saying, I need to keep my eyes open. I need to find where we can make things better. I need, to, I need to look and see, you know, we believe this because, you know, some super smart guy 20 years ago said this was true, but it may not have a, a trial behind it or something like that. So that brought me to where I think I am today. I like doing surgery. I still love it. Uh, I like doing, you know, taking care of patients and, and, and feeling like I'm making a connection with them and making them better. But I really like looking at the data and trying to make changes and trying to improve it for the next guy so that the next person who does it, uh, or even the next army officer who has to go in the, in the, into the, in the combat zone, you know, feels a little bit better about going in there. So that's my story. Thank you for the time. That was Rob Lim. Rob is a general surgeon on active duty in the United States Army. He specializes in advanced laparoscopic surgery, which includes robotics, single incision laparoscopic, and bariatric surgery. He is an associate professor at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, and he founded the Society of Military Surgeons. He has been deployed into combat zones five times, including the initial invasion of Iraq in 2003. This project was supported by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is produced by me, with Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, Nissa Greenberg, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Union Hall and Busboys and Poets for hosting the shows, and to our military. That one's not a joke. Thank you. Thanks for listening. time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.